Sports Radio 1043 The Fan. Every Saturday morning, it's Terry Wickstrom Outdoors. Terry takes you inside the outdoors. You know, hunting, fishing, camping. It's Terry Wickstrom Outdoors. Now, here's Terry. All right, good morning, everybody. What a beautiful sunny day looking out of the window of my studio in Fort Collins. Uh, a lot of you are going to start celebrating 4th of July this weekend, or <clears throat> excuse me, many probably already have. I just want to wish everybody a happy holiday. Let's make it a safe one. Best way to do that is use some common sense and be courteous to people. A lot of other people are going to be enjoying the same resources you are, so let's respect everybody and let's have a great weekend. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about safety later on in the show. We're going to talk about some things that Parks and Wildlife does that are a little different than maybe some of you think. We've got a lot of fishing reports to do. And we're going to even talk about some climbing and camping later on in the show. So we have a lot to cover. Let's go to the phones. Uh, joining us, one of our favorite contributors, Austin Parr. Good morning, Austin. Good morning, Terry. Thanks for having me. No, it's always great to have you on. You know, I'm not sure what the state of how busy things are going to be this weekend as far as actual anglers, but there's going to be a lot of recreational boating going on. Absolutely there is, and it's something to definitely think about when you're heading out, but the other thing about it is that during 4th of July weekend, that usually means that uh, the fish are biting, especially when it comes to warm water species. Well, it does, and you know, it also, uh, you know, people used to say, well, I'm waiting for a calm time to fish at Cherry Creek. I said, hey, the fish at Cherry Creek are like the guy that lives next to the airport. If he didn't eat when a plane went over, he'd never eat. So... <laughs> Yeah, no, I I totally agree with you, and and sometimes it even makes it so the fish bite better when you have a lot of that boat wake. It kind of creates a, almost an artificial walleye chop out there, and and even though it may be a bit uncomfortable to be fishing in those type of conditions, the, the fish are going to be biting uh, even in the peak of the day. Yeah, this is a good time to be fishing. Uh, it's going to be a lot of people on the water. Just be respectful on both sides. Hey, what is going on? Take us through some of the bites you're seeing out there. Yeah, so speaking of Cherry Creek, the bite has been really productive. Now, the one thing that has been a bit interesting is how much water has been coming in and then back out again due to the fact that the lake has been over capacity. Uh, the dam has been running at, at all the way up to 500 CFS, although it's down a bit right now. So the water level has been dropping, uh, but it's going to be getting back to a normal level, and these fish will regulate themselves a bit with that. But we have been having really good fishing. Uh, these fish are still in a situation where they were pre-shad hatch, so there are not uh, a lot of bait fish targets that are in the lake like you'd be finding here in the next couple of weeks. So these walleyes are on structure, uh, they're pretty shallow water right now, too. The majority of the fish that I'm finding are in that under 10-foot of water range. And when you really find them up on these structure points, particularly a bit later in the day, if you can get a bit of a wind or even, like I mentioned, the boat wake that'll concentrate them on some of the mud lines and on these points, you can catch fish after fish after fish right now. And uh, the, the jig and a crawler, real standard walleye presentation on a stand-up jig has been quite effective. But even some blade baits and then jigging wraps also have been uh, productive as well. Folks have been doing uh, good pulling bottom bouncers and lindy rigs. However, these fish have been so concentrated on these spots that you can really do some good damage sitting on one spot and physically casting to them. 
Yeah, I, I couldn't agree. Now, the, as the water falls, it may pull them down. Just as the water rises, it tends to push them up. And, of course, yeah. with bait fish, especially in Cherry Creek, and we'll talk about Chatfield and Pueblo, as those shad hatch and start and start schooling up, you'll see those fish. Some of them will move off and suspend. Have you found that the, you said the fish are concentrated, but have you had to move around to locate them? Because you got, because of the high water, you have more lake to fish. Definitely, and that's certainly the case at, at Chatfield right now. But uh, it's one thing that I mentioned to a lot of my customers is that you you really can't fish to what happened yesterday even. Those walleyes at Cherry Creek move around so much that I'll find them in one spot one day, and then they're completely vacated the next. So I'm utilizing my sonar and, and my GPS to work through my different humps and, and my bottom transitions to be able to find those fish on that given day. And you have to go in each day with an open mind. The fish are biting this time of year. So if you're in an area and you're not seeing a lot of fish, moving and finding that big pod a lot of times is a lot more productive than sitting in one spot and really working a spot if it's not if, it, if they're not biting. I mean, if I'm not catching a fish right now in, in the first five minutes at most, I'm, I'm up and moving because you're having opportunities to have really high numbers at both Chatfield and Cherry Creek. And uh, so the, the movement is key. And then when it comes to Chatfield, all of your main open water spots are still remaining ineffective. The roadbed, all your uh, offshore structure points on the southern end of the lake and the no wakes on, on the edges of the gravel pit, everything is too deep. So these fish are relating to the edges of those tree lines as well as the edges of the old beaches up shallow. I'm finding them uh, later in the day as you get good mud lines from, from wakeboard boats or from wind. They'll move up shallower, and they'll get right up next to those trees in that 11 to 12 foot of water. But earlier in the day, I'm finding them out a bit deeper, and the water's been pretty clear earlier in the day, and they're on the old weed lines right where the old high water mark is next to the sandy beaches. And working up, still the jig and a minnow has been very effective, but some blade baits as well, silver blades, have also been worthwhile but it's been interesting that these fish have not been heavily, heavily in the trees like you find in the northeastern plains or Kansas Lake, uh, but they've been relating to them. So the whole key is shoreline structure at Chatfield. Uh, how about the bass at Chatfield? Same thing? They are more in the trees. You can get them on Sankos right now. Uh, the evening and low-light chatterbait bite on the dam has been effective. But you can also get them on a, a bait-type situation. Uh, a leech underneath a slip bobber is a really good way to go if you just want to dabble in and around the trees. But if I was specifically targeting them, I would be working uh, a little bit more active presentation in a small chatterbait, but then a green pumpkin or black and blue four-inch Sanko rigged weedless but weightless to be able to work along the edges without getting snagged and yet letting that Sanko fall slowly. Um, you know, I, I like the fact you brought up the rigged weedless, but not with weight. I, I fish Senkos or the Berkeley General a lot like that. People love to wacky rig them, and that's an effective way to get strikes. But it's also, uh, it hangs up a lot. You really need some Definitely. open spots to do that. And with the almost, it's like Texas rigging a worm when we say that. I kind of hook the, put the point of the hook back into the top of it. I don't totally bury it. And you can just really be effective because it does sink so slowly and not hang up. And then with, as you mentioned, the, the, the Berkeley General or a true original Yamamoto Senko that has weight to it, that's the whole key to doing that. If some of these brands don't sink effectively enough, 
And when you're fishing in that deeper water, that seven or eight foot of water range, you want that Senko to fall, but you don't want to have it rocket down to the bottom with that weight. So having a little bit more premium soft plastics that sink on their own definitely is worth the extra investment. What are you hearing about Pueblo? That bite is on fire right now, too. Uh, We are still pre-shad hatch, and the fish are up shallow on those points. It's a great spot even if you want to shore fish, even more so than Chatfield or Cherry Creek. Those points are very readily accessible from shore, and the walleyes are right up next to those points. So uh, a lot of different techniques have been effective. Now, Pueblo is certainly a snaggy lake, so a lot of times I like working something like a jig and a leech or a jig and a crawler, uh, particularly a Whistler jig from Northland. They have a little propeller blade along the collar, and they fall quite slowly, and I've found that to be particularly effective at that lake. But you can also do quite well casting and retrieving swim baits along those points. I mentioned the mud lines at Chatfield, and that is definitely something I'm looking for at Pueblo as well. When that bite uh, materializes later in the day, usually you're finding those fish in a mud line, whether it be a wind-driven mud line or a boat-wake-driven mud line. And if you can find a point that has that wrapping around it, you can pitch that jig in a leech or jig in a crawler or work in a brighter-colored swim bait through it and do really well. Now, the swim bait selections that I like are uh, twofold. If I'm going more natural in presentation for a bass or sometimes in that clear water for a walleye, a uh, Kitex swing impact is a very worthwhile bet. But I have really come to like the walleye assassin swim baits. Uh, the brighter colors like the albino shad are one of my favorites, and usually I'm putting them on a quarter-ounce jig head. Now, you hearing much about the wipers at Pueblo? Here and there, there are certainly some fish in there. Um, they're definitely not in the numbers that you would normally find. You'll get, you'll hear guys that'll find one boil here or there. Or you'll pick some fish up here or there, but you're usually not going down there and finding gigantic numbers of them. Uh, the thing about those wipers is they're so nomadic that they're tough to find uh, really consistently on your points and drop-offs. You'll find them moving through, and without really high numbers of fish in that lake. In my opinion, I mean, it's it's just happening upon one. And if you wanted to target them, I would be either at low light with some binoculars once the shad come out looking for fish that are boiling and then running to them, or I would be probably pulling cranks. Uh, a nice planer board fan with some shad presentations, uh, like a, a Berkeley flicker shad or especially a Salmo hornet worked higher in the water column behind a planer board is going to cover some water and and likely come across one maybe a bit more readily than if you're just casting on shoreline. You know, another option that might be good for people who want to get away from the crowds would be John Martin. A lot of water came into John Martin. Yeah, looking at the the flows and and the overall acreage, it looks as though it's come close to even doubling in size from what we saw early in the year, and it even opened up that western boat ramp. So we have an additional ramp, and a lot of times that lake does not take near the recreational traffic like Chatfield, Cherry Creek, or Pueblo does. And looking at this weekend's weather, it's not going to be a super hot weekend. So I think it's going to really provide a great opportunity to catch a lot of fish in a lake that's a bit less pressured. Uh, we're still uh, a little bit warmer down there than you'd be finding in these other metro bodies of water. So we're likely to be starting to see some bait fish. But even in some of these lakes, I've been hearing some reports from some Kansas lakes that are that are hotter and there are some shad, but they're still small enough that the fish are not relating to them much. But it's going to provide a good opportunity still for some saw guys on some of those northern humps on that lake and those big drop-offs. 
But those uh, white bass and those wipers are pretty prolific in that lake still. So pulling some planer boards over the open water and then looking for those boils on top uh, a little bit later in the day, I think, would be very productive and a really good opportunity to head out to. Well, we've got some time left. Let's head up in the mountains. A lot of people are going to head up into the mountains, both to fish the lakes and the rivers. And a lot of them are going up camping. They're going to just take a fishing rod with. Some are going to be dedicated to fishing. What are you seeing up there? Yeah, so as far as the rivers are concerned, they're still pretty blown out at the moment. Even tailwaters are running high. Uh, Deckers is in the mid-400s right now. Last time we checked, Waterton Canyon is super high still. The one spot that does not have as high a flow is 11 Mile Canyon in the Dream Stream, but that's likely to change as we start to get spinny and 11 Mile to a full uh, water position. Uh, but the Freestones, I think, still have a couple of weeks, and you can catch fish on the edges with some brighter and flashier presentations or big uh, stoneflies and San Juan worms on a nymph rig, but it's still a time to be fishing some lakes. I uh, really am liking when you can get up there early season like this. Even some of the bigger bodies of water like Granby and Williams Fork are cold enough that you'll find some, some lake trout still shallow enough that you can get them from the shore. But the smaller lake trout bite at Granby has been really productive. And, and if you can find those fish on some of those deep water structure points and transitional edges, uh, it's a good time to catch a lot of numbers. And then another one that, that we've talked about before, but I've been hearing fantastic reports on, is up at Steamboat Lake. Uh, that lake, I think, is is an underrated fishery, and there are a lot of big rainbows, cut bows, and Snake River cuts. And you have great opportunities on the fly rod with coronamids and calabatus coming off, and then it's an awesome crawfish lake. So tube jigs along the outside edges of the weed lines, just like it's Spinney or Antero, can be incredibly effective. You know, also, I've, I heard that the kokanee at Wolford are doing well, and Green Mountain is in a resurgence. You're starting to see some kokanee and a lot of small lake trout in Green Mountain, but they're getting healthier and some big ones showing up again. So there are a lot of options. Have you heard from either of those lakes? Definitely. That Wolford bite has been productive for the kokanee. I've talked to several folks that have been finding good schools out in that deeper water and, and targeting them on downriggers and dipsy divers. Uh, little uh, small crocodiles as well as needlefish have been effective. And then even some cast masters, little silver cast masters, also were effective for the gentleman that I talked to. So that is a good spot, particularly if you're well-versed in your electronics, to be able to find where those fish are sitting and then get your bait down to them. I think you can have some really good success on some nice cokes. And, and I think it's really a, a fishery that probably is getting to be Colorado's best kokanee salmon fishery. We'll see how Blue Mesa ends up with some of this high water right now. But Wolford has remained very consistent over the years. Yeah. Last thing we'll touch on real quick, and that's one that hasn't been so productive this, this year, and that's been the Northeast Lakes. Same thing that I've been hearing. Uh, the one lake out there that might be the best probably is Pruitt right now. But in general, I think we're unfortunately in a lot of rebuild out there, and I hope that we can continue to keep some good moisture flow for the next several years. The state has stocked all those lakes once again. Now, the one interesting report that I did hear out of Jumbo was that there had been a lot of catfish being caught. It seems like those catfish did not get washed out the dam when we had that salvage, what, last year? And uh, I talked to several folks who were catching a ton of cats, but if you're going up for walleyes, likely to be a little bit slow. Uh, so hopefully we'll be able to see maybe some good numbers out of North Sterling, out of the CWT tournament coming up here in a couple of weeks. But in general, uh, I think that I would be focusing my time front range lakes, 
Pueblo, and then Southeast Lakes at the moment, particularly John Mark. We are out of time, my friend. If people want to get more information or talk to you, where do they find you? I'm a discount fishing tackle. We're six blocks south of Evans on the west side of Santa Fe. All right. We will talk to you again soon, and we do have to get on the water together. Let's do that this late summer or early fall. All right, let's make it happen. Austin Parr, thank, thank you. you. Always, a great, always a great resource. We're going to take a quick time out. We come back. We're going to be joined by Colorado Parks and Wildlife on Terry Wickstrom Outdoors on 104.3 The Fan. Outdoors on 104.3 The Fan. Let's go to the phones. And joining us from Colorado Parks and Wildlife is Brett Walker. Good morning, Brett. Uh, good morning. You know, CPW, people think about them managing our game animals and licensing. They also think about them as fish biologists managing our, our fish in the lakes and things. But Parks and Wildlife and, of course, the parks, parks, they're charged with a lot more than that. You guys are charged really with all the wildlife in Colorado to provide habitat, manage, uh, keep track of. And with wildlife viewing and especially birding becoming so popular, uh, it, it's uh, it's become a bigger part of your job, I think. Yeah, we, um, most of the time I work on a game species, greater sage grouse, uh, but there are other sagebrush obligate species uh, that we're also concerned about, uh, and so we've kind of expanded our horizons, and we're learning learning more every day, in, in with help from the public. Now, one of these. Uh, critters that you you really had kind of questions about and we didn't understand what they were and that's the alpine brewer sparrows you have an initiative to kind of study them tell us about it yeah uh for many years uh people had been reporting um a species that's normally considered a sagebrush obligate and that means it depends on sagebrush for um for breeding uh and that's called the brewer sparrow but they also have been reported in alpine areas, up in alpine willows and that stunt, those stunted conifers known as crumholtz. Um, but we didn't know which subspecies uh, the birds in alpine were, uh, and we didn't even know if they were breeding. So we did a, a project back in, in 2021 in summer, and we got all the results done, and, and we're about to, about to get those out the door. So what did you find? Were they... Uh were they part of the Canadian sparrows that are more of an Arctic sparrow, or were they actually the same sparrows that we see in the sagebrush? Right, so there's two subspecies, one that breeds exclusively in sagebrush, or so we thought, uh, and another that breeds up in the Canadian Rockies, known as a timberline sparrow. Um, but what we found is that the birds in Colorado, which a lot of people thought were this other subspecies, are actually just the sagebrush brewer sparrows, uh, nesting in a completely different habitat than, than we thought. So we, we learned a lot more uh, about where they occur throughout the state. And it turns out that they're, they've been found at almost 100 different alpine locations in almost every mountain range uh, across Colorado. So these are what we thought were sagebrush obligate birds that actually have that breed in a whole completely separate habitat type uh, up in the high mountain country. Now, sagebrush uh, brewer sparrows, sparrow, they're not easily identifiable by looking at them, but they do have a, a, an, an outstanding trait, don't they? 
Oh, they're incredible. They are probably one of, they have some of the most complex and beautiful songs uh, of any songbird we have in North America. Um, if you've spent any time out in the sagebrush uh, in the spring, May or June, uh, especially right at dawn when, the, when all the males are singing, they have these incredible uh, songs. Um, that said, that's really offset by, this is really what we would call a typical little brown job. So one of the smallest brown sparrows and, and very difficult to identify visually. Yeah, this, this uh, study, it's been, it's, I bet it's been interesting, though, and we're probably because of this, we now know we have a lot more of these sparrows than we thought. Is that right? Yeah, that's definitely a possibility. There's been a lot of concern about lots of different uh, sagebrush obligate species um, because of you know habitat loss and fragmentation. But now that we know that this uh, sub sagebrush subspecies actually breeds in alpine willows, it's possible that there's a lot more uh, than we thought there were. That said, these also could be what we call itinerant breeders, and what that means is. They could be birds that first nest in sagebrush in May and June and then move up to the high country to nest again uh, later in the summer. But we need uh, to put some tiny uh, tracking devices on these birds to actually figure out what, uh, what exactly is going on. So there's a lot more to learn. Now, as far as a lot more to learn, there's a lot the public can do. In fact, you not only rely hopefully on the public, but you recruit the public to bring information. There's some apps we'll talk about, but you really look to the citizen slash scientist or whether they're just a wildlife viewer or bird watching, uh, people getting out and enjoying nature is so popular. You really depend on people to report back to you, don't you? Absolutely. People who spend tons of time outdoors, whether it's hunting, fishing, bird watching, or even just recreating, backpacking and camping, um, a lot of people have, have these amazing skills uh, to identify birds, uh, and they actually contribute a lot of uh, information, uh, and including this project, we relied on uh, information from a global birding app called eBird. Um, for part of our research, uh, and that's an increasing thing where the public contributes their observation, and it really increases the knowledge that we have about where uh, species occur, uh, when, and which habitats they're found in. Now, the eBird app, is that available to anybody? It is. It can, uh, you can download it for free uh, for your mobile phone. Uh, it's also available as, you know, on, um, as a web application. And, and people, uh, I bet people really get into that. It not only is that helpful to you, it's probably a lot of fun for these people identifying. And will the app help them I maybe identify a bird that they couldn't recognize? So there's actually other apps that are called, uh, that are birding identification apps. So they can help you identify birds by sight, like the uh, David Sibley's uh, birding app. Um, or there's ones that can help you identify birds by song, uh, like the Merlin ID or Song Sleuth. Uh, there are lots of different apps out there that use artificial intelligence to help you figure out which bird songs you're hearing. It's really incredible technology. And now you're looking, you're really, I think as we wrap this up, the message you want is to have people out there really go to the eBird app and get you information. You really count on that, don't you? Yeah, uh, this is uh, this is exactly the time of year, um, especially with all the snow this year, that the birds should should be starting to breed right now for the next month. Um, so, if people want to get out 
to some of these high country sites. I actually have uh, a map and locations and information uh, for people if they want to get out and report their observations in these alpine areas uh, to eBird. So they can they can go ahead and contact me uh, for more information. I can send them uh, the maps and the information they need. Uh, I'm at Brett, B-R-E-T-T. Yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead again. Sorry. Yeah, my email is brett, B-R-E-T-T, dot walker, W-A-L-K-E-R, at state, dot C-O, dot U-S. And folks can contact me and I can get them all the information they need. And is there there any place on the website where there's more information? We do have a place on our website. Um, They're actually uploading that information uh, early next week. Um, But... If you look at, if you do a search for Alpine Brewers Sparrow in the search bar on the CPW website, it'll tell you more about the project. All right, my friend. Thank you. Always interesting work you do, Brett. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Terry. All right. Brett Walker from CPW. We're, we're going to take a time out. When we come back, we're going to talk to um, Travis Duncan from CPW about uh, some boating programs that are going on on Terry Wickstrom Outdoors, presented by Jack's Outdoor Gear and 104.3 The Fan. You're listening to Terry Wickstrom Outdoors, presented by Jack's Outdoor Gear on 104.3 The Fan. If you've never been in a Jack's Outdoor Gear store, uh, you got some last-minute things you need for the 4th of July outing. Just run in and look around. You're going to be amazed at what they have, and they'll take care of all your needs. Great people, too. Let's go to the phones, and then joining us from Colorado Parks and Wildlife is Travis Duncan. Good morning, Travis. Hey, good morning, Terry. How are you? You know, I'm doing well. Looks like it's going to be a beautiful start to this weekend that's been leading up to the 4th of July. And with that in mind, I know we're going to talk about some boating safety and river safety. Let's start with the rivers. Unfortunately, it hasn't been the best year for rivers with the water running so high, has it? Yeah, that's right. It has. We have had um, uh, quite a few fatalities so far on, on rivers this year in, in Colorado. We're, in fact, we're ahead of the number of uh, water-related fatalities, fatalities we had last year around this time. Um, with a total of 19 around the state. And um, so that's, that's ahead of our record year last year, which ended up being around 40. So heading into this weekend, we're really stressing whether folks are going out recreating on rivers or whether they're you know going to a, a state park and, and recreating on a reservoir. Just check the conditions ahead of time. Be aware of uh, water temperatures. And um, if you're on a vessel, if you're on a, a boat or on a paddleboard, be, sh- be sure to bring and wear your life jacket. Uh, that's the number one thing we could really stress for folks that if you're going to be out recreating on the water, uh, be sure to wear wear your life jacket. Has there been any um, continuity of cause with the river fatalities? Has it been just the extraordinarily high river flows with the rain and the runoff? Has it been just anecdotal that it happens? As, or has there been any particular thing that seems to have led to that or certain behavior? Yeah, I think I think the high flows have contributed to to some of these fatalities we've seen early in the season. Uh, certainly, has been a factor in, in some of some of these um, fatalities. Just, just to note here, Terry, that that there's no real statewide authority on water-related deaths in Colorado, but Colorado Parks and Wildlife has been tracking them, so we can talk about talk about where we're at in recent years. So most of the time, the local authorities handle 
any investigations, Colorado Parks and Wildlife handles investigations on the property that we manage, and we often get asked to assist in searching for victims or evidence in other jurisdictions. But just wanted to make that clear. We, we track it, but we're not the overarching authority on water-related deaths for all of Colorado. I, I think that, you know, over when COVID hit us, a lot of people went outdoors that weren't typically outdoor people. Now, that has kind of changed back. A lot of them have returned to other activities, but we still have a lot of people taking part in activities that maybe they're not as experienced. And even if they are maybe not as experienced in the conditions we're having this year. And it just, I think the know before you go, understand what you're getting into, make sure that you really understand it and the rivers, especially, and, you know, just be careful. We're going to get another couple weeks of these high flows, and let's not see that number go up anymore. Now, as far as the lakes and boating with the 4th of July weekend coming, there's a national initiative. I don't know if a lot of people know, but if you boat under the influence of alcohol, you're as guilty of a crime as if you were driving a car. And nationwide, there's uh, an initiative called Dry Waters. Tell us about that. Yeah, definitely, Terry. Every every year around this time, there's what's known as Operation Dry Water, and it's that national initiative that we're a part of to get folks to to be aware of boating laws. Of, of you know, just like you said, just like you can get a, a driving under the influence, you can get a BUI, a boating under the influence, and the same laws apply. So you wanna you wanna boat sober, wear your life jacket, and and uh, especially you know this weekend, it's a big education campaign for for us. We don't have additional uh, wildlife officers out enforcing boating under the influence laws as part of that campaign and just educating folks about uh, the importance of, of boating sober, uh, wearing your life jacket, and, and like you said, knowing before you go, checking out conditions um, related to, you know, high high water, more more precipitation early in the year this year. We, we do have some boat ramps that are closed due to high water levels at some reservoirs, like the East Boat Ramp at Cherry Creek. So if you are going boating, be sure to check out, you know, what – what the conditions are and what, what ramps are open and, and all of those things before you head out. Now, as far as boating, <clears throat> excuse me, I know it's 4th of July coming up and a lot of people are going to want to enjoy an adult beverage. Um, I'm not a teetotaler. I enjoy my glass of wine. But alcohol on the water affects you much in a much greater, has a much greater effect. You're already out in the hot sun. You're probably a little dehydrated. You've got the motion of the boat. All these things really add to where a lot less alcohol can impair you than you would think when you're on the water. So you really have to be careful of that. And the person driving the boat should just be a a designated driver. You brought up something else too, Travis, and that's the fact that the high water we've got. Now, in a lot of lakes, that water's higher than it's ever been, and it's picked up debris off the shorelines. Now, whoever manages the different lakes, whether it's Parks and Wildlife or different entities is doing their best to remove that debris and get it away. But I believe there's still some boating hazards out there. So be very, very careful when you're out there and, and understand that you may run into conditions you haven't seen before. Yeah, that's a good point, Terry. That, that's something um, our, our wildlife officers, our boating officers have been stressing too, is that, yep, there is more debris in the water this year. So so pay attention to your speed if you're out on, on the water this weekend. Uh, go a little slower. You know, just be aware that there's more more stuff in the water, more debris in the water than there may have been in years past, and you really need to be aware of, of what's out there. 
And the last thing I like to say going into a holiday weekend like this, where we're going to have a lot of people recreating, is that obviously safety should be your number one concern. We're not trying to dissuade you from getting out there. Please get out and enjoy it. But one of the things that can lead uh, to the safest outings is just understanding and then common courtesy when you have so many people recreating to respect the other people. They're all out there to have fun. And you may be doing different activities, but take in mind the effect you're having on other people, and let's all enjoy it together. Yeah, definitely. There's a lot, a lot of folks that, um, who enjoy a lot of different recreational activities in Colorado uh, outdoors. It's a fantastic place to live and get outside. And so, great point, Terry. Be a good neighbor. Get out there, enjoy Colorado, uh, and and uh, yeah, just just practice that courtesy. Uh, to other, you know, whether it's on trail users or whether it's out on the water, just practice that common courtesy and be good to one another this weekend. All right, Travis. Thanks for joining us as always. Yeah, thank you, Terry. You bet. Travis Duncan from Parks and Wildlife. By the way, I don't want to forget to mention that next Saturday is Trout Fest at Coors Field. Um, Trout Unlimited is putting on this big event at Coors Field. It goes from 12 to 6. It's a free to the public. There's going to be uh, casting demonstrations, seminar talks on fly fishing. There's going to be equipment on display, uh, the newest fly equipment. You'll get to touch it, feel it, even try it out. And there's going to be just a, a number of activities there, and it's all free to the public till from uh, 12 to 6. And this will be in the concourse area of Coors Field. Uh, so once you get up there, they'll... I, th- I think there's more information you can go. In fact, there's a spot on my Facebook page. Go to Terry Wickstrom Outdoors on Facebook and scroll down a little bit. I've got a an interview I did with Trout Unlimited, and I've got a, a link to more information on this. It's a great time. Now, later on, I think at 7, they're going to ha- play the fly fishing movies on the big screen. There will be a charge for that, but everything from noon to uh, to 6 is is free, except the food, but the... the uh, Vendors will be there so you can buy food. So next Saturday, plan on that. What a great day. We're going to take a time out. And when we come back, we're going to change things up. And we're going to talk about uh, a different kind of gear on Terry Wixom Outdoors, presented by Jack's Outdoor Gear on 104.3 The Fan. Baby, get ready. Ooh, You're listening to Terry Wixom Outdoors on 104.3 The Fan. Joining us from the Trigger Tying Gun Club is Nate Freeman. Good morning, Nate. Good morning, Terry. How are you today, buddy? You know, I am doing great. And, you know, everybody knows that Karen and I talk about it all the time, do our shooting at the Trigger Time Gun Club. We practice our handguns there. We try to do it on a regular basis, and I get a little lax sometimes, and I, I pay for it when I do come in. But now I'm <laughs> looking at your website, and what's this? I see TriggerTimeKnives.com. Yes, yes. This is something we've been working on for a very long time, and we're very excited. So we've always, uh, you know, for quite a long time, we've sold some form of pocket knives and and blades in the shop, but it's something we've been really expanding and and growing that side of the business. So we're excited to officially have launched TriggerTimeKnives.com as of last week. So it's our full supported online retail shop for knives and EDC gear. Wow, and I bet you, you know, I've kind of been following the evolution of this and some of the brands, but uh, you really went out and you're you're representing some of the top, top knife companies in, in North America and in the world, in fact. Tell us about them. 
We sure are. So, you, you know, you have a, a lot of brands that are typically um, marketed and sold at a lot of the big stores and big box stores, and those are all great too. But as a small shop, we try to stick to our, some of our favorite uh, high-quality, more niche brands. So um, we sell a ton of a, a company called Microtech. That's probably our best sellers for sure. Um, and then we've added a bunch of other really cool brands over the last year and, and several of our favorite brands over the last six months, actually. So we've been able to really expand upon that, too. Tell us a little bit about some of the different brands and what they offer. Okay. Well, um, so as far as different brands and what, what they offer, uh, one of our favorite brands that we're, or we're actually a full dealer with is called ProTech. ProTech is out of uh, Southern California. Um, they have a very neat approach to knife production. So they do produce a lot of knives on a regular basis, but each one is hand-assembled by a person who's good at their craft. So they're a very high-quality knife. They start around $200 and go up from there. Um, they are particularly known for making really nice, switchblades that are side folding. So they're a good combination of everyday hard use, but also they're, they're built very well. And you can almost wear one as more of a dress knife at the same time as using it every day. So they're a very, very neat brand. Um, now, okay. our other, go ahead. Yep. Oh, no, no, go keep, ahead. no, keep going. Okay. So, well, um, that, that's one of our favorite, uh, switchblade or auto knife brands. Uh, the second brand that we picked up is called Stroop knives. Stroop knives is really cool. They're a a small, small family-owned company out of Fort Bragg, North Carolina. Uh, Chris Stroop is the owner, and he's actually a military veteran. And what's neat about their company is him, his wife, and his kiddos, they all, he even has his kiddos help build the shipping boxes when they have time off. So they're all very hands-on and very family-oriented and really trying to bring high-quality fixed blades to people at a, at a fair price. Um, anything from a, an outdoor hunting-type fixed blade or bushcraft to even a smaller everyday carry uh, concealable type knife as well. So really great product line and awesome people to support. Um, and then our other favorite brand is a company called Heretic out of South Florida. They make uh, really, really high quality knives, particularly out the front switchblades, but also really nicely built folding blades as well. Um, that's a company we've been after for honestly over two years and we're finally online with them. So we're very excited. Now, when you go to the new website, you bring it up, and it's not just a show. You can actually shop online there, right? Yeah, you sure can, and that's exactly what we've been working towards. So uh, we wanted people to be able to, you know, um, obviously, if you're local, find it online. If you just want to do some window shopping before you come to the store, you can do it that way. If you want to purchase one online and then come pick it up at the store, you know, and, and save on some shipping, and you get to come say hi and hang out with us, that's always fun. But also for our out-of-state customers and future customers. It makes it a lot easier for them to uh, acquire some new gear. You know, another thing that you have really gotten into and you've made a real craft out of, and that's sharpening knives. You've got some pretty interesting knife sharpening equipment too. We do. So we carry two major brands for that, and they're two of the finest companies we've found so far. Uh, one is called TS Prof. They're actually based out of uh, Moscow, Russia, and they have, have d developed the name as one of the best precision knife sharpeners in the world. Uh, and now we are a full dealer with them, which is super exciting. For my own experience, that's the brand that helped me go down the rabbit hole of precision knife sharpening as, as one of my favorite hobbies. Our other favorite brand, and the one that I use at home a lot, is a company called Wicked Edge. We're also a direct dealer with them. They're based out of Santa Fe, New Mexico. And again, it's a very high-quality, high-craftsmanship precision knife sharpening line. Now, <clears throat> both those available on TriggerTimeKnives.com? Um, the TS Prof products are currently, and the Wicked Edge will be adding those soon. We're hoping to add many, many more products as we go. So, 
That sounds great. Let's switch gears a little bit as I opened the segment saying that Karen and I do a lot of shooting there. You know, overall, you know, we talk about you all the time. You have 100-yard indoor rifle ranges and 25-yard indoor handgun ranges, so you never have to worry about the weather. It's a membership on-reservation system for shooting, uh, so you know your lane is there and waiting. Uh, but the retail you have there is available to the general public. You don't have to be a member. And one other service that you guys, you know, you have full gunsmith on the, at the shop. We sure do. So, yes, in addition to the, the, the private shooting club portion, we have the retail shop along with the full gunsmithing um, and, and machine shop, basically. So we, one of the main favorite things we love to do is build custom precision bolt action rifles. So we do that all the time. Um, but also when it comes to other projects, maybe it's converting a trigger in your 1911 or doing some tuning on things like that. So we can handle and tackle quite a few different projects in the gunsmithing department. Uh, one of our favorite things we love to mention too, is that, you know, we do that for our members and for the public as well. But on the retail side of things, our shop is located in unincorporated developed County, which means we only have to charge 2.9% sales tax. And I know myself included for everybody that makes a phenomenal difference in your out the door prices I and mean, we all like to save when we can so well the other thing is and you know how many firearms i've purchased over the years from you guys and some i've had modified some not but the knowledge of your staff your people are shooting enthusiasts they understand and you know as a gun owner we all have different likes and dislikes and favorites and i get to experience the different types of firearms, learn about them when I'm there and make intelligent, well, I don't know if I make intelligent choices, Nate, but I make informed choices. <laughs> <laughs> if we, if we hang out together enough, hopefully it'll turn into an intelligent choice. Yes, so, <laughs> absolutely. That's one of the things we pride ourselves on. And we tried really hard to have a, a you know, a, a diverse background as far as our staff and, and we're all enthusiasts first. And then we happen to be able to work in the industry that we love. And so we get to talk shop all day long. And we were going to do that whether we worked here or not. So it's just a, the, the shoe fits perfect for us. And it's something we love to share and guide people along as well. So we all start somewhere, and we can all hopefully learn stuff from each other as we go. Last, last thing, real quick, you also have a lot of guys who are really into the long-range shooting. In fact, you do some events for long-range shooting out of trigger time. We certainly do. So all of those classes and events will be posted on TriggerTimeGunClub.com, our main website for the shooting range. Um, those will be under the training tab under Precision Rifle Level 1, Precision Rifle Level 2, and then we'll have various alumni day events for people to come out and practice. So the Precision Rifle Level 1 class, the, the one class we have left for, uh, with availability is August 4th through the 6th, and the Precision Level 2 is September 22nd through 24th. And if people are interested in that, they can go onto the website and read the basic syllabus and what's expected and what they, they can expect to get out of the class as well. But it, it is something we very, very much enjoy, and we love teaching people how to do it as well. Yeah, and some of the distances you shoot at, the facility used for that, I believe, you can shoot all the way out to a mile. Is that right? You certainly can. So we have, uh, we have steel targets out to uh, a mile for our bigger cartridges, our bigger calibers. Um, but also, we will do sometimes, uh, we'll actually have rimfire events where we use rimfires as a training tool, and we'll shoot our precision rimfire rifles out past 400 yards as well. So, simulating that distance shot, but at a closer distance. So, very challenging and very, very fun. All right, we have to go, my friend, but the two websites to remember are trigger, TriggerTimeGunClub.com and now TriggerTimeKnives.com. Absolutely, Terry. Thanks, my friend. I sure appreciate your time, and it's always fun chatting.
All right. And always great dealing with you guys, too. Good people. Thank you so much, Nate. Thanks. Have a happy Independence Day, man. See ya. Yeah, you too. Good. That's right. We should be wishing more people a happy Independence Day and so lucky to live in this country. But Nate Freeman, the guys at Tree of Time are just good people. Um, whether you're looking for retail or um, a place to shoot, but now with this uh, knife, uh, triggertimeknives.com, go take a look at it. If you're into precision knives at all, you might find it interesting, and you'll be dealing with great, reputable people who are local right here, and you know they'll take care of you. We're going to take a time out. When we come back, we're going to change back to fishing, and we're going to talk to the folks at Tightlines and maybe about some big pike on Terry Wickstrom Outdoors on 104.3 The Fan.